traditional tabletop and live-action role-playing games through the lens of horror. A special thank you to our Patreons for helping make this podcast possible. Settle in, Thin Bloods, grab a drink in your favorite set of dice, and let the darkness consume you. Hey, welcome to the Gehenna Gaming Podcast. Today we are honored to have Seder Brucato. Sateros is a musician, writer, journalist, editor, and game designer who has worked on uh, many of your and my favorite World of Darkness lines, such as Vampire the Masquerade, Mage and Mage 20th, Werewolf the Apocalypse, and more. He has released a collection of horror and fantasy stories called Valhalla with a Twist of Lethe and a, and other strange tales. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Brucato, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, we're and- very excited to have you. My uh, collection of mage books next to me is... Uh, just leaping off the page with the delight here. <laughs> I, I Sater, I don't know if you know this or not, but y- you're actually in the presence of the one person that has the most mage, the Ascension books I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> cool. <laughs> I, um, I showed some friends, like, you know, the collection of books. I, I've gotten a lot of the other White Wolf lines, but mage was the first one I really completed. And I, I absolutely loved it. And I think after I like shared, hey, look at I'm so proud I have these wonderful books and I was able to, you know, save them, keep them safe, and they're in good hands. Um, I think it was Terry from Mage the Podcast was like, Hey, where'd you get the copy of Sorcerer's Crusade? And I'm like, <laughs> Well, it's actually there's a local store and they have another copy. He's like, Seriously? And uh my friend who owns the store was able to send him out a copy and he was delighted. So Oh cool. Terry's awesome. I love Terry. He's such a good guy. Yeah, he's great. Um but yeah, we've got a, a bunch of uh, questions for you. You're an, sure. obviously a very well-written and uh, interesting fellow. Uh, we've been fans of yours for a long time. So, uh, Mark, do you want to kick us off with some of our questions? Yes. Yeah, so, uh, Seder, there's one question I've been dying to know from you. Um, sure. if, if, let's just say for the sake of argument, um, mm-hmm. you were to be, um, I don't know, uh, let's say on death row, right? And you had your final last meal. What would that last meal consist of? Oh, sushi. Ooh, good, good, good call. choice. I love sushi. Sushi, sushi, and Indian food are my favorites. Um, Indian food too. Uh, uh, every everything else, like yeah, that's that's okay. But but no, it'd, it'd be sushi. Which it's funny because I I finally discovered sushi, or finally got to the, discover sushi thanks to Dan Greenberg. And uh, and Mark Reinhagen and the the original Wraith design meeting, because Dan had talked Mark into taking us out for sushi mm-hmm. on the, at the company's expense when the, the first night uh, the you know, first night that we brainstormed on uh, on what eventually became Wraith, and that was the first time in my life I'd been able to afford sushi because I wasn't paying for it. And I was like, <laughs> this is awesome. <laughs> When's the next time we're doing this? This is great. <laughs> So are you are you yeah. like a are you a a kind of uh, sushi a roll or a sashimi guy? All of the above, tempura, sashimi, roll. Just basically, cool. I I love all of it. 
Yeah, sushi kind of became my white wolf, my white wolf food, white yeah. wolf era food, partly because of the introduction by way of, uh, by, you know, by way of that dinner. And partly because while I was working at white wolf and I was involved with my now ex-wife, Wendy, uh, between the two of us, we were making pretty decent money and we were working completely absurd hours. So we rarely cooked at home. Uh, by the time we both got off work, we were just like, let's just go out someplace. And we both loved sushi and Indian food. So we, we ate a lot of sushi and Indian food during my years in Atlanta, in Atlanta. And after leaving Atlanta, I couldn't afford that shit anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Wraith was born out of sushi at a Japanese restaurant. I think it's really cool. I know. Yeah. It's, it went through a lot of transformations, <laughs> a lot, a lot. <laughs> I feel like that should be on the inside cover somewhere. This game is powered by sushi. <laughs> <laughs> that would, yeah. I don't remember if Rich likes sushi. If it's if Dansky likes sushi, I don't remember if we we'll ever. Have him on and we'll have to grill him with questions. Uh, yeah, sushi is kind yeah. of one of those. It's one of those foods that people are like either afraid of, love it, or don't like it because they got sick off of it. <laughs> there was back during the uh that same era the 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 masquerade which was pretty much uh our our go-to nightclub uh for a little while they were doing like su they had a sushi bar and nobody would touch it because the, the, the masquerade was a dive yeah. <laughs> it was a converted hill i mean it was awesome you know it was three stories tall and and you know saw bands like uh the ramones and body count and stuff wow. there That's but awesome. nobody would touch the uh would touch the sushi we we you know would joke that it was made out of fish that they found in the in the toilets <laughs> anyway that's a, yeah. that's a that's a hell of a food to just leave out in a club in a dance club, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they didn't do that for very long. I th I think they might have done that for a year, but I don't think it was even that long. Oh, the masquerade was sort of the unofficial inspiration for the succubus club, because that was the place like that. Not say everybody in White Wolf, but everybody in White Wolf who went clubbing went there, and because it was this, you know, kind of magnificent edifice of of uh goth industrial splendor uh that kind of became the inspiration or at least one of the inspirations for the succubus club now what what year was this if you don't if you don't mind me um aging the story because there's 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 almost like a parallel to like places like in new york like the long black veil um oh yeah you know well it was i i first went to the uh, the masquerade in 93 but i uh, believe it'd been open since the 80s and succubus club came out 92 maybe 91 i think it was 92 wow. though is it still open do you believe oh no no unfortunately it was closed it closed pretty recently too i think maybe two years ago Whoa. and was demolished for a parking lot because fuck you atlanta oh. yeah uh, that sucks uh, it was it was, a, it was an institution i mean like i said the, the ramones played one of their last gigs there um i i can't even remember all the bands that i saw there and that was just during a 10-year period the place was open for at least 30. i need to take this back <laughs> go down to Atlanta. right uh, it's it's terrible, but anyway, I don't want to. Speaking of uh, speaking fluent tangent, <laughs> that's a that's a good that. that's a good tangent though. That's um that's spicy. I like it. There's certain places in in cities that have the kind of spirit 
to it that it becomes this mm-hmm. weird feedback loop, right? Like one thing yeah. is influencing the other, the, the, all of the, you know, white wolf crew going and hanging out at, at masquerade and, you know, masquerade kind of informing some content down the road. I think I, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, that's really it cool. totally. It totally was that, and the uh, the secret room in uh, um, in in um, ah, Wisconsin, why am I uh, Milwaukee uh, oh, yeah. was was that way as well because uh, that inspired the spy's demise in uh, the digital web in Mage. That was oh, wow. an amazing club. That one's still open, although I I believe it's moved location since the last time I was there. But that still exists. So so when you say when you say club like. Are we talking, and I guess this is more of a question of, of the types of places that you would go on a regular basis. Are we talking dance club with a lot of bass and a lot of like kind of gothic industrial music blaring on the speakers? Or are we talking more of like dive bar with bottles thrown across the room and a rock band on a, on a stage? Oh, they were definitely, it was definitely more the dance club yeah. uh, sort of place. Although I've, I've spent my t- enough time in dive bars too, <laughs> especially <laughs> when uh, Telesterion broke up just about a year ago, but uh, my band Telesterion played its, its share of dive bars, though thankfully nobody threw any bottles at us. <laughs> there were probably a few times where we would have deserved it. <laughs> <laughs> now we, we had um, the, we, we, we had the pleasure at one point of playing in the same club that my favorite band killing joke ended up playing in a few months later. Oh, so oh, I love killing joke. Yeah. And, and we would have played on the same stage that killing joke played on in another club, but that club, that club got closed down. Uh, the reason that we, uh, the, the last time killing joke was in town, they had to move from move location from the original, uh, the place where they're originally scheduled to play. Uh, to the uh, to, to the other to the other place, and as it turned out, we had played at both places, <laughs> but not nice. on the same stage. Uh, Telesterion ended up playing on on uh, one of the smaller stages in a different room of that club. Whereas, uh, if we had if Killing Joke had played at the original venue, we would have literally played on the same stage as Killing Joke, although not at the same time. That's that's pretty wild. What did you what do you play? Mm-hmm. A bass, bass nice. guitar, and uh, a little a little bit of hand percussion, uh, and I'm trying to teach myself keyboards, but it's not going very well. <laughs> I'm dyslexic, so I, I play more by feel and and by yeah. muscle memory than by remembering what fret or key hits what note, because my brain just says what 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 yeah. when it comes to that sort sense. of thing. Which it's funny because I have like this sort of of this sort of weird uh, dyslexic autistic superpower where I can work on a half million word book and remember where I where I put what reference to what. I can't remember where the you know where the A sharp is on a bass, even though I've been playing the damn thing for like forty years. <laughs> okay. Yeah, like music music theory is is alien to me. I mean, I can I can play guitar, I can play piano but i i'm it's all by fumbling my way through but like music theory reading notes all of that just sounds like Mm -hmm. awful to learn (laughs) yeah (laughs) same here i look at it and i just it's just i'd say it's greek to me except that greek makes more sense to me (laughs) (laughs) but uh but yeah so it's 
we, we, we all do things our own way, I guess. Indeed. Any way we can. Um, yeah. Moving on with our questions, what was your sure. first introduction to tabletop role-playing games? Uh, that would be discovering D&D back in 78 or early 79. I think it would have been 79. Uh, but uh, I, my dad and mom split up in 78, and I moved in with my dad for a year. And he lived in... He had an apartment in uh, Springfield, Virginia, and one, I was incredibly introverted back then. I did not make friends easily at all, and there were basically no kids in our neighborhood anyway, mm -hmm. so I ended up just walking. I used to walk, like, everywhere, uh, which, oh, I mean, you too. know, when you're, when you're 14, you don't have a whole lot of choice, but, uh, uh, but there were a bunch of different shopping malls and things like that within a mile or so of my dad's place, and I was really seriously into military models at that point, uh, and so, you know, like, point me at a hobby store, I'm there, and I find this place in Springfield Mall, actually, there's several of them, one place in particular, and... Then they had this thing with this, they had this big spinner rack of lead miniatures. I'm like, those are really cool. And they were shitty by, by today's standards, you know, like 70s era heritage and minifigs. But, you know, uh, to, to me at that time, it's like, look, they're ogres and goblins and skeletons and shit. And I loved that. My dad, my dad is, a is a fantasy fan, so I got that from him, you know, early on. And then I just... Is right around the time the Monster Manual and DM's Guide and stuff came out. I'm looking at those books, and I would just, after school or on the weekends, I'd just walk over to the mall and just, you know, read the, read the books. And I wanted them for Christmas, so I got them for Christmas. And me and my friend Chris ended up playing, you know, our first D&D &D games with both of us playing two characters each because we didn't know anybody else who played the damn game. <laughs> that would have been 79. And you, uh, you played you played two characters at the same time. That's great. Yeah, I love it. It's fun. Yeah, it's, we didn't we what what DM we didn't have a DM until yeah. uh, until we got like three people in the group. At which point, um, I was the DM, and I'd have a character, and Chris and Greg would each have a character, and then we got other people in Hans and um, uh, Hans, Chris, Greg. We had two Chris's at one point. Um, Kathy, my girlfriend, joined for a while. My girlfriend at the time joined for a while, and then, uh, and then, then came the uh, in in eighty three came like the great influential watershed moment where I went to VCU, and because I was you know because I was gaming, got introduced by one of my uh, one of my classmates, two of my classmates, uh, also named Chris and Kathy. Uh, they introduced me to two friends of theirs, Bill and John, and that would be Bill and John Bridges, who were members of the uh, uh, VCU Games Masters, which had been formed the year before by Daniel Greenberg, uh, Les Brooks, I always forget Mike's last name. Um, and as it turned out, that ended up being uh, hugely influential because, you know, Andrew and his younger brother, Dan, and Bill, John, me, uh, we went on to White Wolf and Les and uh, Sam Shirley, who was also in the group, went on to Chaosium. And all of us have formed various companies since then, since those days. Oh, that's incredible. Uh, it's funny the way it works. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's like this, like a, a, a new 
a new generation of of writers and and game developers that are doing some pretty pretty amazing things and breaking molds mm-hmm. um and yeah. you know since looking back at your career and now just kind of walking through that like ro- that memory road that you just walked through of mm-hmm. of playing dungeons and dragons and and all of the different groups and and campaigns that you played and bringing girlfriends and friends in and maybe even having some drama in the middle of all of that, like how far you have come. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, and how far you've come now to, you know, you're, you're, you're a very ubiquitous writer. Um, and you have written for one of our favorite lines, game lines, vampire, the masquerade. Thank you. Yeah. I hadn't, hadn't worked a lot on vampire. Uh, It's funny. There were two points, one point where I was offered the line when Dan Greenberg quit, he suggested me, mm-hmm. and uh, I sat down with with uh, with with him and um, um, God, I, Ken Ken Cliff, who was the head of editing and developing. And I was like, "Thank you, I really appreciate the offer, but I'm really not that into vampire. I really yeah. love Mage." And yeah. Ken's like, "Thank you, because we had no idea what we we're going to do with it, with Mage if you left." So I suggested uh, Jen Hartshorn, you know, who was doing Wraith at that time, and that's when uh, Jen transferred from Wraith to Vampire and Rich Dansky, who is an old friend of Jen's and was freelancing, joined to take over as, a, as head of Wraith. This is, yeah, it's 95 because Daniel quit, I mean, sorry, Andrew quit. Um, <clears throat> Andrew quit in part because of Kindred the Embrace because he didn't <gasps> get credited or anything in that. They, they were not going, the, the, the studio was not going to credit uh, a publishing company and so they, they said, well, you know, we'll credit one person. They credited Mark and Andrew, who had far more to do with the vampire than Mark did, uh, got very understandably fed up and, and he left. Of course. Yeah, they didn't even they didn't even have. Yeah, they, they didn't credit their publishing company. They only credited Mark. And maybe, to be honest, Kindred the Embraced is so bad. Maybe it's, oh, it's for, maybe it's for the best. <laughs> Uh, it was it, it was horrible. We had when they sent us the the pilot. Uh, we all gathered together. I think there were like thirty oh, of no. us in the company at that point. <laughs> we all gathered together in a TV room and we watched it. And as soon as we saw, we see the vampires running in the daylight. We're like, "What yeah. the hell?" And We're then the guy gets it. This is what we have. Clan Gangrel will do to. Oh, this is what we have. Clan Bruja will do to all you Gangrel. We just like collectively went no, and it just got worse from there. <laughs> Bizarre. Oh, it was so bad. Uh, but you know, I, I realize the show's got a fan base now, but I don't understand. I, I completely uh, hated that show. <laughs> you know, it sucks too. I mean, like I love that show because it's so cheesy. Um, and maybe I think I watch it. I don't know if I watch it like um out of some kind of self punishment because it, it is so bad. But I can only imagine. Congratulations, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, hey, we all got our. We all got our kinks, um, <laughs> but the White Wolf, the White Wolf team worked so hard, and then got so excited. All three of you sitting down to watch this, and then <laughs> Kindred the Embraced. It was, <laughs> we we got so screwed over that. But anyway, that's a whole tangent. The the two of two of the books that I worked on for Vampire, though, I'm I'm, I'm still very proud of the original Dark Ages and oh, um, Revelations of the Dark Mother. And that's I'm one of my really, favorites. really happy with Revelations, especially Revelations. The long tail on that one yeah. has been really gratifying. It's a beautiful book, and yeah, you absolutely should be. 
Yeah. So did you did you write a lot of the poems that were in? Um, uh, yeah, that was. Was that you? It was. It, it was large. It was largely me. It was me and Rochelle Udall. Um, yeah. And she really is. She she and I have been collaborating for over a quarter century at this point. Was uh, she on Gods and Monsters? Yeah. Uh, actually, so, yeah. she wasn't. She wasn't on Gods and Monsters. No, she was. Um, her dad died uh, during that course of that book, but she was That's in. Right. Uh, she was she was working on the uh, the cookbook when her dad died, and she just was that between that and graduate school, she was not in any shape to work on Gods and Monsters. Yeah, it would be. Yeah, I remember uh, but, um, listening to you on a different show talking about the uh, production of Gods and Monsters, and you actually had a very diverse team uh, working on it, which was great because it, yeah. it brought so many different worldviews into Mage that um, that yeah. book really it was, needed. It was it, it was it was a it was kind of a challenge wrangling that many people, especially since some of them, like like uh, Adonis and um, and Cali, are in Greece. Uh, but uh, but rank, it was kind of a challenge wrangling that many people, and especially at the time I was working on it. While right while we were working on it, uh, James was at Standing Rock twice, and that really did a number on him, which is completely understandable. And oh, wow. my yeah. uh, my friend Raven died, and my girlfriend Kyrie died, and I, I was present for both. So that was that was a really hard book, but. Yeah. I'm very happy. Aside from the missing trait, I'm very happy with the way that book came out. It's certainly a lot more than what it had originally been envisioned. As I originally, I, I just kind of tossed it off when we were uh, tossed off the idea when we were uh, doing the, the Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. It was just going to be this PDF of a bunch of characters, and then with the emergence of discussions about diversity and, and getting people to write their own cultures and so forth uh, along with my working with James and as things worked out uh, Hiromi and I have been friends for ages but they had uh, Hiromi's pronoun is they um, they had just uh, been laid off and were like do you have any you know do you have any gigs and I'm like actually yes and as it turned out, like Hiromi has just taken the ball and completely run with it. They have something like twenty something credits now, and actually, I'm currently writing for a project they're developing. Oh, uh, cool. for, for it came, uh, they came from from, the, from they that for they came from beyond the grave, and now I'm Fantastic. working for Hiromi, which is cool. <laughs> it's it's glad I'm glad to hear that you're on that and that series uh, with the Onyx Path folks and Dawkins has so many talented writers and uh, it's such a funny game. Uh, it's good to have some more people uh, tackle that one. Yeah, we're pretty excited uh, so, about that one. Me, me too. When when I saw when they launched the Kickstarter for this, I told Matthew, I said, um, whenever you need writers, count me in. I grew up on 70s horror, so <laughs> that's, that, that's, that's my jam right there. I, I, I want and I, I want in on that, and as it turned out, you know, um, Matthew hired Hinomi to uh, to do the first supplement, and I was like, "This is even better! <laughs> I get to I get to uh, to work with uh, on on uh, Hiromi's first uh, development project, and I get to work on They Came from Beyond the Grave. So that's what I'm working on this month. Nice. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, the ca the camp of They Came from Beneath the Grave is mm -hmm. is is awesome. It's one of my favorite it's one of my favorite parts of, of 
kind of hammer horror films, early mm-hmm. like sixties and seventies cheesy horror. Like they, what is it? The um, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls and and that kind of feel, mm-hmm. kind of exploitative horror movies. Oh yeah, I was I was just watching um, Twins of Evil Hammer, one of the last mm. Hammer films. I, I, I described movie. it later as I, cool. Yeah, I, I do too. It's my favorite of them. I, it's the most hammered, the most hammer hammered that ever hammered. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was a final stomp, right? Like it was like this weird. Hail Mary, desperate hammer down. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just it's so over the top in every way, and, and it's just perfect, perfect cheese, perfect cheese on that one. So, if you don't mind me asking, what can sure. is there is there any information that you can give about this project? Uh, I'm working on one of the chapters, which is a I'm going to say too much. It's just a location called Coldstream Creek, and I'm having fun with that. Awesome. Uh, in fact. It's really, it's really good that 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 project came along because with the last few years and this year in particular, I've been having a really hard time writing because, um, kind of my brand is inspiration. You know, I'm 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 all about the yes, it's dark, yes, it's shitty, but we can overcome and we can triumph and we can. And I've had a really really hard time pulling that that spirit these last few months and with oh, no this doubt. book I, I, I with this book i was like oh i don't have to be relevant i don't have to you know i, I don't have to give you know inspirational speeches this is just for fun and i'm having a i'm having a blast with it that is that is nice you know and i as a writer i appreciate you talking about that because there's so many people that you know would hear that and be like, you know what, he's right, <laughs> because there's there's probably so many people that have been struggling with that, especially mm-hmm. if, like you said, hopes your brand, some maybe even if comedy's your brand, uh, yeah, it can be hard uh, with what we're going through. So mm-hmm. I think that that really helps, especially from someone who's been writing for so long. Um, it adds a lot of good perspective. So thank you for that. Sure, thanks. Uh, what do you write? Uh, I'm actually the content developer for Gen Gaming. I write a lot of our one shots, but um, so I'm writing one for uh, Thulu, Alien, Tales from the Loop, ah. Vampire, um, some Mage. Yeah, I, I try to. I I love all these different systems. Uh, even Star Trek uh, Adventures. I'm doing a Klingon thing for that, but we uh, we have a lot of fun, and I I like showcasing these different great systems to people and what you can do with it. Cool. That that's an impressive range too. I I worked on some Star Wars when I was working on the World of Darkness, and that was the tonal shift was like whiplash. Oh, yeah, yeah. That, Rick, that's really cool. Rick has an Rick has an ability, like an uncanny ability, to just dive into a system and immediately get inspiration from it and put out gold in a very short period of time. Thank you. <laughs> that's true. You're like, check out this thing that I wrote, and it's like, whoa. Uh, how many? <laughs> yeah, I know, but. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's it's bizarre. My head's in my head's been in the clouds since I was a kid, so it it comes pretty naturally to dive into these worlds and um, just find the candy I like the best quickly. <laughs> cool. I'm glad that you're doing something with that. That's awesome. Congratulations. Uh, it's, it's brought so much fun and uh, great people in my life. You know, between Marky and our friends in, in our community and people like you and other writers I could connect with. It's um. 
it's it's an absolute joy. I mean, you get to talk ab- about these wonderful stories and um, different systems, different worlds, right? That's that's probably why Mage was my. I, I love vampires so much, but Mage was my um, number two go to every time because it had so much possibility about where you could go with it. Mm. Kind of like, I mean, Werewolf did the same. You had the Umbra, Penumbra, but Mage really was like you could go off the rails and do just about any style of game you wanted. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I kind of, I ran something with Mark earlier this year and I think it was your first time playing mage. We um, got far out with it. It was like a little bit matrixy, but you know, still very supernatural. It was fun. Yeah. Very, ex- very existential. I guess it's one of my, one of my favorite things about mage just but playing in your game is that it, you know, interpreting what is reality and then mm-hmm. like having that kind of technicolor you know hallucinogenic experience of playing a tabletop game that is mage and then cracking open <laughs> a mage book and taking a look at it and go oh okay it's exactly like that all right <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah pretty much kind of what was the main goal of developing um the revised edition of mage the ascension uh let's see I- <laughs> Hmm. I'm trying to think of the tactful way to put this. Um, the main the main goal at the time it would depend really on who you asked. I mean, I wasn't involved in that. Uh, that was after I left. And I guess the, the tactful way to explain that would be that uh, I had had a falling out with management at that point. Mm-hmm. And when, uh, when I left, I left angry. And I left some people angry with me. So for certain people in the company the goal was to make a mage without me and not include me in it and uh unfortunately for jess he got kind of caught in the middle of that because jess and i are old friends and we had he and i had been collaborating during my transition out we collaborated on like six books together and when they told him well you know you're going to do it this way and we're going to tell you what to do and you have to do it like this and you have to do it like this and you know phil's not to be involved and if you have a problem with that find somebody else who doesn't and that put yeah that that put jess in a really bad position and i was angry at them for years over that and we we finally all made up obviously and we've apologized we we were all kids at the time (laughs) and you know we one of the things about the old white wolf days was we worked at a, a just a, a mind-breaking level of intensity our our release schedule was eight to ten books per line per year That's and yeah it, yeah it was, it was absurd we we worked completely ridiculous hours uh, a lot of the books you know so the some of the books you know, actually got the benefit of being worked on for months, but some of them were put together in weeks. Wow. Uh, and it shows at times. Uh, and we were able to do that really early on, you know, when, when we were, you know, fresh and full of energy. But by the late 90s, we were exhausted, you yeah. know, creatively, emotionally. Uh, and we were really getting on each other's nerves. And, you know, I did shit that got on people's nerves. Other people did shit that got on my nerves. And, uh, I, I was also married to somebody who hated the company, and that wasn't helping. And so we took a break from each other for a while, me, me and White Wolf. And you know, we, thanks to Rich Thomas, uh, we rebonded back in, in 2005. Mm-hmm. It's 2005 or 2006. Actually, I think it was two, Origins 2006, if I remember correctly. And you know, by that point, 
all the most of the bad blood had filtered through and you know while well, i've been working with rich ever since and yeah, he, uh oh sorry go ahead no it's 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 interesting too because you know it, bringing in kind of a new kind of positivity so you can reconnect to some older game lines that you used to know like old friends much like rich yeah it was uh so the really the revised re revised era questions would be more for for jess and for bill uh, bill actually got me back into mage for one book during the revised era the later revised era but um but that was just kind of a um hey this person had to fall out can you fill in i'm like okay sure and it ended up turning out really well the um uh revised era order of hermes book but until i started work on mage 20 the Order of Hermes book was the only contact I had with the revised uh, edition line. I didn't even read most of them until uh, I was <laughs> cramming the entire line while working on Mage 20 uh, yeah. at that point. It's also kind of like a testament to, to, to what you were saying before about how part of your brand and part of kind of what you do in, in your writing is, is involving hope and involving inspiration, right? And revised has mm -hmm. is, is got such a tonal difference. It's yeah the much the harder. way that that Bill and Bill and Jess because I mean Bill and Jess were both the uh, developers on it and they were in my uh, my development team on twenty yeah and the way they explained it was basically that you see White Wolf, White Wolf was financially hurting bad by the late nineties which was ironic considering we were incredibly successful but the gaming business itself had had taken some pretty pretty serious hits by the uh, by by ninety eight. And the company had expanded too quickly, as many 90s companies did. Mm -hmm. And um, so one of the goals with sales and marketing was to make Mage sell better. And as Jess and Bill explained it, somebody, I don't know if somebody actually said these words or if this was just the general sentiment. But the general sentiment was, if you made Mage more like Vampire, it would sell more like Vampire, which it didn't. Uh, and right. the the idea behind uh, revised as they have explained it to me was to basically cut out all of the stuff that was to quote somebody I'm not going to name con too confusing and just make it streamline and make it simple again. And that did actually work for some people. Uh, revised definitely has a, 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 a fanatical fan base as well. And what Rich and I uh, decided during our first uh, meeting about mage 20 was that mage 20 should be a mage for all mage fans not just one particular editions era which is one of the reasons why i went with the meta plot optional uh element of uh, a mage 20 rather than saying and this is 20 years after you know the events of this or 10 years after the events of this i i, I took it up to the the backstory up to the point of mage first edition and then said now here are things that happened in the meta plot. You can choose to in, in you know involve them or not, but play the game ultimately as as I said. You know, mage ultimately belongs to its players. Right, that's a great uh, and I yeah, <laughs> and I I didn't want to cram anything down anybody's throat. If somebody loves revised, play revised. If they love first edition, play first edition. You know, if you want to play it like with Mage Made Easy, where you just throw the meta plot completely out, and and you know work with uh, character template, uh, not character templates, rather um, the um, the concept, the um, 
trying to remember the phrase, the phrase that I used. Uh, but, you know, working just with the concepts of martial artist or uh, wizard or witch or mad scientist or whatever, rather than the groups, do that. Play it that way. Uh, just mage is flexible enough, like you said, to be played all kinds of ways. And I don't want any, I don't, I, I personally don't want, and I personally don't think anybody should force anybody to play, play mage a particular way. Uh, Stuart Wick's original um, uh, subtitle for the, the version of, for the version of mage that, that as, as he had written it, um, was a game of infinite, a storytelling game of infinite possibilities. And, uh, and yeah, it's always kind of reflected that too, which was always beautiful, like you said. Yeah, that's I, I think there is for for all the differences between Mage First Edition and Mage Twenty, I've always felt that retaining the core of Stuart's uh, inspiration and Stuart's ideas was, was was vital because those ideas and that vision were fucking brilliant. Yeah, and Stuart was fucking brilliant too. Even the concept of, of of kind of having players interpret magic. I mean, that's a kind mm -hmm. of re reading Mage Twenty, and, and and admittedly, you know, I'm fairly new to Mage just because it's it was always I was always a vampire player, and Mage was always that game that was. Well, I'm probably not smart <laughs> enough to play that game. Um, so, upon reading Mage Twenty, I yep, not smart enough, but I'm going to try anyways. And there's some really really amazing concepts here. And the big part of it is always endless possibilities. I mean, that, that's, that's wonderful that you were able to translate Stuart's vision into M20. Thank you. Yeah, it's funny. One of, talk about inspirations. One of the biggest inspirations for Mage is, is my, at this point, a 40-year, over 40-year fondness for the band Rush. And one of the things that I love about Rush is from their first album to their last album, they did what they damned well pleased. Yes. And, you know, they, they were definitely considered, especially in the 70s and 80s, they were considered a band that, you know, that the critics loathed and most, pe most people, a lot of people uh, were just kind of like, oh, that's that that intellectual band and so forth. And then by the, by the late eighties, early nineties, you started getting bands like Metallica and tool and, and uh, living color and so forth going, we love rush. And the critics were like, what <laughs> you actually <laughs> like those guys. And they're like, have you listened to that band? They it's don't give a fuck. <laughs> yeah. And so around the, around the early nineties, rush started getting critical cred as well as, uh, as well as popularity. And, you know they they played they 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 played the the both the fame game and the music game their way every single album from 1974 i think their first album came out till you know till i think clockwork or uh, clock, clockwork angels clockwork angels came out what 2011 i think i think so i saw that tour which was great yeah and they were they were from from first to last they what, you want a half hour long, you know, music epic about the uh, about the Apollonian Dionysian split and and balancing between those archetypes? Okay, we can do that. What you you want a song about the corruption of of uh, commercial music? Okay, we can do that. You you want a a 
broken hearted love song we can do that you want a song about the friend of yours who just died yeah we can do that fuck you we can do everything <laughs> as they did and that's that's the spirit that i brought to to mage have you ever have you ever listened to um queens of the stone age yeah actually i saw them um uh 2000 i think yeah with the uh, nine inch nails uh, no, I, actually, I saw them with uh, a Vast. Vast was opening for them. Oh, I love Vast. That's, that's quite a lineup. Yeah. yeah. Hell of a show. Josh Holm, I think his name is, from Queens of Stone Age, was talking in an interview about how, uh, like, kind of the main thing that he wanted to do with Queens of the Stone Age is, well, let's just play music that we like and good music mm -hmm. and not have to fall into any kind of, like, genre. Um, yeah walls like we don't have to push ourselves into a box basically do whatever the fuck that we want and in the interview he mm -hmm. mentioned rush a couple of times where he's like you know we want to play good shit that people like and that we like and it doesn't matter what other people say right yeah so yeah uh, okay. speaking yeah. speaking of, of doing things your own way um what was your inspiration behind m20's book of the fallen and the updated approach to oh. the defendi so good. Oh boy! <laughs> <laughs> wow, uh, there's that kind of a whole interview on that one. I, I think the short answer to that uh, would be the current events. Yeah, I was going to say uh, that's that's awesome. Though. <laughs> that's a well, healthy way to approach current events. To be honest. Yeah, it was when 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 the Nefandi were first created in Mage First Edition, they were they were they were literally a tie-in with them with uh, with Werewolf. That's what I mean. That that's in the like three or four paragraphs dedicated to the Nefandi in Mage First Edition. They're they're basically you know they're they're the worm mages, and when um, when putting together when making when making the backstory of Mage more substantial. Uh, part of what I wanted to do was was go with that whole cosmic I, that that whole cosmic idea that that idea of the cosmic forces of of you know dynamism stasis entropy and you know with with the the uh, the Nefandi definitely being you know entropic but not just decay but a willful decay the the people yeah. who would they weren't just going you know booga 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 i'm evil they were going no we we are actively working toward the end of existence why here's a whole list of reasons why we think that's a good idea and we don't care if you like them or not and so that was one of the inspirations there one of the other other inspirations and if you've read the book of the fallen you've seen the author's preface for that book and so there was a whole lot of really ugly personal experience uh that went into that and uh being involved with two sociopaths went into that and um current events went into that and uh, just the just incandescent fury that i have felt the last few years went into that and one of the things that really changed over the course of of the the, the Nefandi's, you know arc of existence i guess between uh between mage first you know the worm mages booga booga and the kind of cartoonish satan thing tied in with something slight something more malevolent which uh, sam and abinet and i came up with in uh, the uh, first edition um uh, book of madness and 
The Infernalism, The Path of Screams, which was another book that was written out of pure rage, because that was right around the time, well, I was right after the time that I'd separated from White Wolf and was finishing my, uh, my, my contracts and my commitments up to them. And so, you know, Infernalism is, is <laughs> written out of pure venom. It definitely, and... it definitely comes through on the page um, <laughs> in a great way, though. I mean, yeah. you, you could tell that you channeled <laughs> a lot of anger and fury, and that, that book is, uh, is all the better for it, really. I mean, it was good timing. Um, as you can probably imagine, that probably wasn't the time to like work on a They Came From. That was perfect timing to have hey, uh, we want you to write a book about infernalism. Uh, but it, yeah. it's fantastic. I've lent it out to a few people, and they're like, dude, that was intense, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was both. And, and there's, there's some stuff about this in uh, the, 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 the uh, Book of the Fallen preface, but um, I have actually had personal experience with people who are practitioners of malignant magic and that's not something I would ever want to encourage anybody to do. And uh, I, I've seen firsthand the results that it has. And so one of the things that I said when, when, uh, when I first started working on Mage, they were like, you know, when are we going to have, you know, um, Mage's uh, Sabbat book? And I'm like, Mage ain't going to have a Sabbat book. There is never going to be a player's guide to Nefandi. Because right. as, as, as I, I, I said at the time, I've said a whole lot of times since then, people don't become, you know, undead super corpses. People don't become 10 foot tall, hairy killing machines for the Earth Mother. People do practice magic. That, yeah, that's right. a fact. Whether yeah. or not you actually believe in the, the powers of the occult or not, magic is a, you know, the practice of magic is a fact. And whether you consider it the, you know, extra dimensional forces or whether you consider it psychological forces at work there, malign magic has hor horrific effects on the people who practice it and on everybody around them. I've seen it. I've experienced it. And I'm not ever going to make a book that says, ain't this cool? You should do this. Uh, so they are always going to be NPCs as far as I'm concerned. Now I, I caught some criticism. I'm sure this is going to come up in the in the interview as well, so I might as well just get it out of the way now. <laughs> I caught some criticism for the Book of the Fallen because <clears throat> there were there were people who interpreted it as a player's guide. And I'm like, no, no, it is not. It is a book that addresses the fact that people will play these characters anyway. So if you're gonna do it. <laughs> As both a storyteller and as a player, this is what you can expect. I'd rather you didn't. <laughs> yeah. And I've I've made that as clear as well the words I just spoke over and over and over again for you know, almost thirty years, because that is not. Now, granted, I know people like you know Jacqueline, my collaborator on that book, and my you know my friend. Uh, Jacqueline played a uh, a Witterslaw Nefandis in the technocracy game that we were uh, that we were doing a few months ago Jacqueline is somebody who has in my experience of her the integrity and the boundaries to be able to do something like that in a healthy way right. I would not put some I would not encourage a general audience to to do that because one of the things I've learned in my my decades of gaming and game design is that when you're 
when you're writing a game design book or when you're when you're designing a game book a role-playing game book you are saying to a general audience of people you're never going to meet you are fill in the blank ain't that cool yeah and i've learned that it's it is important to keep an eye on what you're saying is cool yeah because you're never going to meet all the people who read this book and you're never going to be able to control the way they take it that's great advice Uh, thank you I mean, it was challenging when working on the Book of the Fallen because it was important to me, it was vital to me, um, to make that book honest, but also to not encourage the things I wrote about in that book. And there are people who feel that I did, and I guess their 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 opinion is their opinion. Uh, I, I ultimately, you can only do so much to tell people don't really really don't fucking do this, um, but. It was vital to me to create to to create a book that presented the Nefandi as a real and present danger because people like them are. And right. Hence, current events. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the yeah, evil nice. and evil people and and people with ill intent, um, you know, do exist. And you were even mentioning, you yeah. know. Uh, malignant or malign magicians and, and kind of let's call it black magic. I mean, there are different types of black arts that many different types of people do. Mm-hmm. They, they do that, right? Like there's been really messed up, yeah. fucked up people doing fucked up things. And so you can't, you can't have a game. And this is just my personal opinion. You can't have a game where there are bad guys, right? Where, where mm-hmm. the, the protagonists or the would be protagonists of this game say well there are bad guys and there are evil people doing evil shit in this game without shining a light on that evil stuff this is i get into this more in fallen companions there's a book that i'm working on for storyteller uh, storyteller's vault which is the core of it is stuff that i that i had started writing for book of the fallen and book of the fallen was already almost forty thousand words over when i cut it down uh but i cut over 30,000 words out of it, mostly stuff that was in progress where I just said, this ain't going to fit and shoved it off to the side. Um, but I'm, I'm expanding and finishing that. And part of what's, you know, part of what's in that is that there are, <coughs> there are people in politics who are into, um, you know, who, who are into this sort of thing. And it's not even conspiracy theory stuff. Uh, Steve Bannon yeah. has been, yeah. Oh, yeah, open. oh, yeah, sure, Ju- yeah. Julius Evola is a great philosopher. I mean, Julius Evola was a fucking diabolist. Yeah. He was a fascist, he was a fascist, not even chaos magician. That, that's giving, calling him a chaos magician is too, giving him too much credit. But he was, he was a malign, fascist, dia- uh, uh, diabolist, magician that's literally what he was and there are people who are involved in certain elements of the you know the alt-right as well as the the uh, as well as the far left you know do practice these things and again whether or not you believe in the power of spirits or you know metaphysical forces or whether you think it's just psychology these things have power and I felt it was imp- I felt it was vital, especially given what was going on at the time I wrote the book. I felt it was vital to go. No, these these things have power, and they're not good. People who using using them to these these aims that have these beliefs that do these things 
this is not just an alternative point of view. These are people who will feel who, who will feed broken glass to a child and laugh because it's funny, and they'll put it up on YouTube. Yeah, that's evil. Yeah, that's not ball, just really a point. Of, yeah, and that most of the stuff that I write about in in the book of the fallen, though presented through a fictional lens, is true. The human trafficking, the mm -hmm. uh, you know putting you know have putting bum fights on 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 uh, on. Uh, on on the internet, snuff films, uh, the the you know the military. I have to say the military-industrial complex, but but it's true. You know, people like Eric Prince who have mercenary armies that they just send in and just kill people because they can. Um, the the companies that that hire mercenaries to, you know, to 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 keep the workers in line. Uh, there's a scene. Uh, at the beginning of one of the the chapters in the in the book of the fallen, with uh, with mercenaries uh, torturing people and eviscerating a child uh, in Africa on a chocolate plantation, that comes from life. That's yeah. real. I didn't make that up. Uh, and the, the prison industrial complex, the people who will you know turn misdemeanors into felonies and then increase the, the the length of time that someone can be imprisoned so that they can work for 50 cents an hour uh for a longer you know for a longer period of time and then you pocket the money that's evil and so that that's what i was writing about that's evil and it, and it shows the light too it's using um kind of like it's using your your talent and you know your good name and you're writing a good book, but at the same time, you're shedding light on something that's uh, real, horrible, raising awareness that these things <laughs> exist. And that, like you said before, uh, even experience with uh, people who draw inspiration from uh, whether it's psychology or even mysticism, um, it's, it's a force that's driving them, whether people yeah. believe in it or not. and that's that makes them more dangerous than someone who just has a mental condition yeah yeah and exactly and I, and I wanted to 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 differentiate between what i refer to there as clinical sociopathy it it actually has a bunch of different names depending on which source you read but uh the people who <laughs> they're the people who are kind of have a, a sort of an autism of empathy Mm -hmm. where they recognize that it's a thing, but they don't understand it because they don't feel it themselves, and the people who are actively malignant. And I know yeah. people who have the clinical lack of empathy who, who strive to be good people, even though they don't innately understand what a good person is, they try to be that. And then there are the people who do have a sense of empathy, and they kill it because it's fun. And those right. people are horrible. Absolutely. <laughs> it's very easy to... It's, unfortunately, it's a very sensitive thing to kill. Like it's very easy to kill your sense of some sense of empathy. I mean, realistically, looking at that idea that you know absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? And what is mm -hmm. first corrupting is your sense of of, of empathy, um, and that could be that that could be anywhere. I mean, not just in a if you're sitting in a high position, but if you're sitting in a high-ish position in your own. Mm -hmm little universe the the person who is you know take your prison example um not just the judge but the the warden and even the the guy that's kind of walking up and down the halls and and making sure that the prisoners are staying in line 
all the way to the, mm-hmm. the, the gang leader to, you know, the, the kid who's just a little bit stronger than the, the other prisoner in the cell. I mean, any kind of power structure mm-hmm. where you feel you're on top, your empathy kind of withers away over time. Yeah. I mean, we, we see that. I don't want to get too, too much bigger on my political soapbox than I already am, but, but, but I mean, <laughs> you, you see that with, it, it, it doesn't even really matter um, which end of the political spectrum you look at when you start dehumanizing those people, then doing whatever you want to those people becomes permissible. And historically, and historically, that's where that's where you start getting atrocities. That's where you start getting genocides. That's where you start getting the your next door neighbor coming after you with a machete one day because you're one of those people. Yeah, I mean, that happens. Those are things that really happen in different places of the world. Sometimes even in our country, a couple hundred years ago, same thing. It's happened. happening in our country now. It's yeah. happening now again. It's, it's just, happening. It, it's totally happening in our country now. I mean, look at look at this, the thing that came out a few weeks ago about the forced hysterectomies with the yeah, the, the uterus correct the uterus collector. Yeah, that's a, what, the, what the fuck. Yeah. There there are people. There are hundreds of people involved in making the decisions to send dozens, if not hundreds, of women to a to to a, a doctor who sterilizes them because they are those people. And that's the stuff I was writing about. And I figure it might as well mention this now because it'll probably come up is <laughs> there, there, there was, there was someone who, you know, accused me of saying, well, that's the, that's the evil Jews. That's total fucking bullshit. This book had nothing yeah. to do with Judaism. The only connection right. whatsoever that anybody could say had a connection to the only connection anyone could say that this has to Judaism is the Klepoth. And the, the Klepoth is not a Jewish tradition. The Klepoth yeah. is, a, is, it is blasphemy. It is counter Judaism. the the concept of of the uh, of the concept of Kabbalah and the ideal in Judaism is to make the world a better place. The idea that that the um, that the that the divinity's creation is a living thing, and that as the ideally as the chosen people of divinity, it is your job to make that living thing better than it is. And the then the Fendi do exactly the opposite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's not a metaphor for Judaism. That's right. a complete refutation of the idea of Judaism. And I, w- I would say, I would say somebody, somebody who would make that statement um, has a massive misunderstanding on um, Jewish mysticism, Judaism mm-hmm. and her- Hermetic Kabbalah and how that is, and and how the the idea of the clip off have have been developed. I mean, the idea of the shells is mentioned uh, in like rabbinical law kind of a couple of times, but really only developed in in Hermetic Kabbalah. So someone who would make a a massive leap saying that it's a anti-Semitic um, thing just because it, it contains you know um, a particular kind of dark reflection of of Hermetic Kabbalah is just completely misunderstanding mm-hmm. the point of actual Jewish mysticism. Right. Well, I mean, it's a fallacy well, yeah, of logic. Exactly. It's an equilicism. It's uh, two things have one minor thing in common, therefore they're the same thing. No, right. it's bullshit. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And hermetic, hermetic Kabbalah isn't Jewish Kabbalah anyway. Right. Hermetic that, right. Kabbalah is itself a, a, a cultural appropriation, to be honest. But yeah. it, Hermetic Kabbalah is, is a cultural appropriation of Judaism. Klepo comes out of Hermetic Kabbalah. Right. And right. It, is a com- it is completely counter Jewish. Right. Uh, when you know, when when you have somebody who's 
goal is to separate oneself from divinity to willingly to willingly plumb the things that divinity has cast off and to emerge on the other side of that as a divinity yourself is about as non-jewish as you can get Absolutely. and how somebody how somebody came up with the idea that i was uh, that i was ragging on jews out of that is it literally it was literally inconceivable to me also we had three jewish people involved in the brain trust and nobody even brought up the idea that this it was just a seems like a personal attack more than anything you it know pretty much it's so far out of left field um especially yeah. just knowing you a little bit <laughs> even from history and action what you've done your social media presence um <laughs> you're very fair and you're very you. thoughtful and uh to to make that kind of accusation it's uh it's total mudslinging i mean I wouldn't believe that for a second. Yeah, it's, yeah, a, it's like you're, you're, a big, you're a big shining target. And you, I mean, yeah. a lot of people look up to, look up to you, or, ourselves included, and you have done a lot of amazing work. So you have someone who stands on top of this, you know, with this, with this big shining kind of target. It's easy to kind of throw mud yeah. at. Um, yeah. I, I, to be honest, maybe, I don't know. I don't, you know, people, people can make judgments without actually reading the book, but just mm -hmm. to scan things to get upset about yeah yeah well yeah and without going into too much about the, the the person who started all of this there was definitely a personal element of it but the thing is 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 i'm i'm used to i mean you, you can't do what we do i mean you probably even know this with gahana games you can't do what we do without having people who will attack you just for doing it oh for <laughs> sure yeah <laughs> i know I, I i mean i know i've probably pissed off more than a few people <laughs> you yeah, right now. <laughs> cool. Um, yeah, I, I just, I, yeah, just, you know, I, I've been doing. Um, my career changed my my professional day career into kind of like a sales thing and management as well. And um, mm -hmm. you know, every now and then, some customer will call up really mad, and mm -hmm. like, you can tell the person who answered the phone's like not prepared for it. I'm like, give them to me. People yell at me all the time. <laughs> I've been getting yelled at my whole life. One more is not gonna hurt. You know, it's like I, I just kind of have that attitude about it now. It's I don't know if it's yeah. your experience, but you know, at the end of the day, uh, I can live with myself because I at least try and believe I'm doing the right thing. Yeah, I mean, every, everybody fucks up. I'm certainly not immune to having fucked up, but you know, it's just accuse me of the stuff that I did actually do wrong. <laughs> Come at me with a uh, you know actual critical complaints of uh, things you don't like. I guess yeah. Yeah, I mean, we definitely, and you know, I've talked about this in other interviews, but we definitely fucked up some shit, especially back in the old days when we, you know, didn't have social media to go, hey, is this is 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 this offensive? Right. You know, where we're we're just a bunch of people, you know, kids really, because we were all in our twenties. Um, yeah, when you just have a bunch of kids grinding out these books, uh, you know, a few weeks at a time with no way of checking, no, I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't even order books on Amazon because Amazon didn't exist until 2000, uh, not 2000 rather, but 1995. And it wasn't really viable until like unless you were, you know, could go to the library and find the right book or go to the, right. the local Barnes and Noble and find the right book. And even then, most of the time, the, the, the information was incorrect and or offensive. 
And, and th- so. we have our fingers at so much information now with Wikipedia and everything else, like mm-hmm. finding out the certain phrases, even, you know, like, like cakewalk, for example, being extremely offensive, but you know, it, it's been printed in numerous books, probably because certain people just did not know because no. how would you, right? Yeah. I mean, now, and this is one of the things I, I love about social media now, I can go on to a group and go, you know, hey, how is what what was the proper way to say whatever? I right. can make a group, yes. uh, make a you know, put together a brain trust, a confidential brain trust of yeah. a few dozen people from all over the world, and run stuff past them and go, you know, is this a problem? Is this a problem? Is there a mistake here? Is this offensive? Whatever. You couldn't do that back in the 90s. I mean, one, we didn't have social media. Two, we didn't have any way of meeting most of the people we had now. And three, we didn't have the bloody time. Yeah. <laughs> and if you screw up, hey, you tried, and you can see that we tried because yeah, people were involved, and you know we're still going to make mistakes, but you can tell that the motive wasn't there to do any harm. Yeah, now we we I can't speak for everybody, obviously, because right. I was just one of dozens of creators, but there was none of the developers ever intended to offend anybody uh, anybody other than right wing assholes. Which is a whole other tangent right there is the number of people who were like, oh my God, my world of darkness has been taken over by social justice warriors. I'm like, sure has. Did you, read the written, did you ever read, read the books? <laughs> Hi. You know, we, we were always, we were always, you know, quote unquote, social justice warriors. It's just, you know, one, maybe you didn't read that book, you know, and two, the idea of what that what that looks like was vastly different in 1992 or 93 than it is in 2020. Um, yeah, of course, of course. There was someone who a few years ago uh, blew a gasket over the terminology in um, the Orphan Survival Guide because they were like, "This, this is queer phobic." I'm like, you, "The book was written by queer people. Um, those are the words that we used in 1998 when that book was written." Yeah. Well, you should have used this word. I'm like, that word didn't exist. It literally didn't exist. <laughs> yeah. Or even certain terms that now are completely mm-hmm. owned and, and, and celebrated, which were extremely offensive back then. I mean, even... Oh, yeah. What, what, what year was this? Well, which, which one? <laughs> uh, the, the, the orphan book? Oh, the, the uh, orphan survival guide was written in 98. So 98, using the word queer, for example exactly would be you know extremely offensive and only starting to kind of make rounds to be like let's take this fucking word back it was it was less and i say this as someone who has been queer and who has been in queer communities since 1983 mm-hmm. well i've been queer all my life but i just didn't you know really recognize what that meant until the 80s when i got involved but um but you, it was less offensive in the '90s to call somebody a faggot than to call them a queer. Yeah, that that oh. word got reclaimed in the 2000s, and, yeah. and meanwhile, yeah. faggot, which was, uh, uh, I'm not gonna. Say, it was obviously an offensive term, but it was an offensive term that, like a certain N word, that like nobody wants to use without getting their face caved in. Now, in the yeah. '90s, was a was one of those words that in like '80s and '90s rap or stand-up comedy was just a word that they thought at the time, if we use it, we're going to take the sting out of it. No, actually, it doesn't. You know, Richard Pryor himself said that he regretted normalizing that word. But um, but it was the same thing with, with you know, fag, fag, you know, um, back in the 80s and 90s. That was, 
I mean, I yes, hear the, the Dire Straits song "Money for Nothing," which is a mm-hmm. cool song, and even to this day, I'm like, "Ooh, that just doesn't sit well." You know? Yeah, that part comes up. You're like, "Whoa!" Yeah. <laughs> well, and he was also. This is another thing that comes up with the White Wolf stuff too. But he was also. That wasn't Mark Knopfler saying those, saying that saying that Prince is a faggot. That was Mark Knopfler relating this. Yeah, they're relating what this guy working his kitchen is calling Prince. Right. And the whole mistake, what the, you know, or interpreting what the author says, what the author says in character as what the author believes in real life. That's a whole, that's a whole other discussion in itself, which especially when you're talking about, and it's a major point of argument in the, the, the White Wolf books too, because so much of that stuff is written in character. And you know, well, well, you said this thing in you know, chapter one of the Book of the Fallen. Therefore, you think that no chapter one of Book of the Fallen is written in voice. I don't actually think any of those things. The person saying them is horrible. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, just looking at like William Shakespeare's Titus Andronicus, like, does he want to? God, yeah. Does he like all of the horrible things that are said in that by the mm-hmm. characters in in that play? And then, does did William Shakespeare actually want to cook and eat people? Well, I mean, in that case, because yeah. I mean, if people actually believe that, then Stephen King would probably be in jail. <laughs> probably, yeah. yeah. Is that too right? <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's well, uh, it's funny because we're talking about RPGs topics and uh, justice and what's right, right. Uh, and especially different worldviews. And it's, of course, we get on this topic because Mage. One of the reasons I love it is you have these different groups that kind of like reflect certain worldviews, right? Which is something that's always been cool about it. Um, I think I just lost my entire train of thought. Hey. <laughs> I think I know, I think uh, I know where you're going with it. Then, then pick it up and run with it. Yeah. yeah so out of all of the, these different categories and this, like, I guess, different um, uh, traditions in, in, in mage, I guess, which one would probably be your favorite out of all the mystical traditions in, or, or spheres? Oh, I'm a cultist of ecstasy. I mean, in, in so much as I personally don't join groups. I mean, that that's one of the things about my, my real life. Uh, spiritual practices as, as I'm not a joiner. I don't trust groups. Uh, but if I were to join a group, if you had to define me by a tradition, then I, I'm a cultist of ecstasy for sure. Uh, although it's, I, I didn't actually realize just how much until I wrote the tradition book, which speaking of books that were written in, in a matter of weeks, I had initially contracted someone who was involved in the kink community to write that book. And that person choked up a hairball on it, and I ended up writing the book in two and a half oh, weeks. Oh my gosh, really? Yeah. <laughs> and in the process, I learned some things about myself. Um, <laughs> I always thought of myself as a verbena until I wrote Cultist of Ex- until I wrote Cult of Ecstasy, and I was like, no, I, uh, that's pretty much that. That's one of the most honest books I've ever written. <laughs> that's me. Actually, I know where I was going that before. Um, RPGs and, and just the entire genre and how we play. It's kind of like Bleed, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. When yeah. you're acting a- different characters, writing different characters, and it's like people confuse the the reality and the mask you're wearing as a certain character. Um, mm-hmm. It just reminded me of that. It's, it's like a reverse Bleed. Yeah, in a way. Well, and it's the thing is, and I know this as as an actor and a writer myself, because I was an actor before I was uh, before I was a writer, uh, and I was trained as a method actor in college. That was my major, 
and uh, so I write like a method actor. I get into the uh, the headspace of the people that I'm writing about, uh, and I both write from the perspective, which is one of the 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 places that the the whole writing the writing the splat books from the perspective of someone involved came from uh, both in the the um, um, tri book black fairy tri book which i also wrote <laughs> which i wrote at the same time i was i was taking on the the mage role uh, the mage uh, developer job that was a very interesting month <laughs> but uh, uh, but um, but that i i brought in that that uh, that idea of seeing the world from the perspective of someone who's in the group from uh, from my acting background and one of the the things about both acting and writing uh is the the goal i feel and obviously there there will be people who will disagree with it but i feel that the goal of both arts is to bring emotional authenticity to an artificial experience that's a good way to put and, it thank you uh, and so, you know, with 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 uh, with a bleed, that is, I, I think that's the, I guess resonance is the right word, uh, yeah. kind of the, yeah. the emotional resonance involved in a person who, you know, who is bringing or who connects on an, an emotionally authentic level with an artificial situation and an, art, and an artificial character living an artificial life. And when you are consciously doing that, and this is one of the reasons why much as I love role-playing, I've gotten more cautious about the way that I approach role-playing games as a designer because you know I've seen people who don't know how to turn the character off. And it's, it's not... You know, it, it's it's not, you know, like like Patricia Poling going, you know, they're summoning demons. No, they're not summoning demons. What what we are summoning, though, when we role play is we are summoning a connection between the the authentic day to day us and the fictional aspect of a fictional character who on some level is still a projection of us. Right. One could also argue that it's it's almost like keying into. You know, if you if you I don't know. If kind of what your beliefs are but if you if you believe in in the idea of uh, multiple dimensions existing mm -hmm. you know kind of overlapping one on top of the other um and if you're kind of keying into a a potential different you whether it be mm -hmm. through like you're you're grabbing an essence right so you the attitude yeah. or the feeling the emotions of of somebody who is not you but also you at the same time mm -hmm. yeah that's a really good way of putting yeah. it yeah yeah, it's, and that's uh, young, although I, I, young being a uh, young being a, a philosopher, a, a philosopher, a mystic, and also a you know middle-aged white guy in the uh, in the <laughs> early early mid twentieth century, he had his his perspective. He was only able to take the idea so far, but young, I think, was completely on the right track with the idea with with his with his concept of of archetypes mm. being characters that are bigger than the individual being connecting to elements of the individual. I think the post Jungians have taken that, that idea further, uh, particularly Debbie Ford, who's a big influence on me uh, and her, uh, uh, her books about shadow work, uh, which 
I, I got into in between my, my earlier run on Mage and my later run on Mage, and I think it shows. That work uh, is great. My, my fiance talks about it with her friends, and I've, oh, cool. I've picked up a bit on it as well. And it's like, you know, I don't know a ton about this, but I can tell it's healthy. So it can be, yeah. I mean, it can. I mean, like anything, is the, the the toolkit can you know you can you can cut wood with it or you can cut your fingers off with it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with the hammer there. Yeah, yeah. but uh, but yeah, conscious working shadow work consciously. Uh, it can be very very powerful. I mean, you know, unconsciously it can be powerful too. It's just when when you're doing it consciously, you know what the fuck you're doing with it. You're intentionally <laughs> doing it. Going back to the Book of the Fallen, that's another reason that uh, that book. It was both important for me to do that book and important for me to explain what was going on there. And this is the section uh, on on shadow work in uh, in chapter four uh, that understanding your capacity to be an awful person is not the same thing as being an awful person. It's what you choose to do with that capacity that determines what kind of a person you are yeah. and there are there are people whose approach to shadow work involves you know um the antinomian i think i'm pronouncing that correctly the, the the antinomian practice which is well i think this is horrible so i'm going to do this so therefore i will gain wisdom yeah. by doing something horrible um i don't think that's a great idea um it works better in theory than in practice uh, at the same time, it is useful to at least understand where your personal as well as cultural taboos come from and at least address them and look at them consciously, not necessarily acting them out. Um, you know, eating babies is a bad thing for reasons. <laughs> uh, it's, it's not just a cultural construct. It's more than taste. <laughs> yes. Uh, and well, the fear, the fear is that they, they might be delicious, right? And so, yeah. so there's a like the the um if you if you know anything about um Rasputin um mm -hmm. in That's exactly it, it early um or in Russia there was this group of people and I'm I'm flaking on what the exact name of this group is but they would they would come together and you know they were they were religious like highly pious exactly. religious um mm -hmm. orthodox Christians that would get together and do horrible things so that they can mm -hmm. be saved with the idea that you know, well, Jesus will save us, but he needs people to save and he, mm -hmm. he needs bad people to save, or at the very least, bad things that we do give the Lord an opportunity to save us. So it's kind of this weird, like, well, let's see how far we can take this. Um, yeah. And you, you <laughs> right? Yeah. Sin that they, yeah. sin, sin that you might be forgiven. Yeah. Right, right. I'm helping. Yeah, it's like the little Ralph yeah. meme. Yeah, yeah, you're sure you are. Mm -hmm. There you go, champ. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's why I guess going back to the book of the fallen again, because um, but that's why one of the things I wanted to 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 make a point of in that book was not just to go, you know, the big. It's what your know, world of darkness, Trump. It's I, I I made a point of of saying that there are an awful lot of people who consider themselves light workers and new agers who yeah. are doing horrific, terrible things. I know I've met some of them. Um, and well, I mean, and you see it and, and it, it feels uncanny, but not, uh, but not um, unexpected. You see it now with the way that certain quote unquote, new age light workers have taken to the QAnon conspiracy stuff. Yeah. That's and an interesting overlap. I was like, fuck it. Told you fucking told you scratch. Yeah. You know, 
I don't say scratch any new ager. Obviously, that's not the case. But scratch certain new agers, and there's there's a uh, there's a fascist, uh, you know, fascist rapist, whatever the fuck, right under the right under the surface there, who's just using. <laughs> Using the uh, uh, using the, the the terminology or the techniques, either to either willingly using them to manipulate people or unconsciously using them when actually he's thinking that he's you know all sweetness and light when actually he's a malignant a malignant fuck um, <laughs> who is deluding himself. And in the case of the the Baffies in uh, the other the the heralds of Baphomet, but the 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 the, um, the, the Baphomet sect in uh, in the Book of the Fallen, they're like, oh, yep, hi, yeah, we're we're your we're your best friend, and then we're going to invite you to this party, and you know you won't be leaving later. Well, you will be, but you'll be leaving in pieces. But hey, we're having a good time. And those people, I've met some of those people. Those people are real. The the sect the sect is imaginary. People aren't. You know, you can't um, you can't explore, I guess, the occult and paganism and and kind of magical study groups without running into certain mm-hmm. types of people that are, I guess, you call it malignant. I like that term. Um, that are that are malignant, whether they know it or not. Um, mm-hmm. And it stinks because there's you know a group of people that are like trying to improve or self-actualize or, or connect with a higher being or try to find the, you know, what does it mean to do the great work or that kind of thing. And then the, you have these little trolls that like show up and they're these little gremlins. I want to feed on people. Um, mm-hmm. One question I do want to ask though is, is, yeah. you know, magic has been defined in, in so many different ways. And it's, it's quite clearly, I guess, def- I, I wouldn't say quite clearly, kind of loosely defined in in, in May <laughs> twenty in, in a weird way. Um, but with for for you, um, Seder, how how would you define magic, like in your own personal life? Question. Um, my own personal life is: I believe that magic is is the using riffing on Crowley here, good old Uncle Al, but uh, mm. but it's. Basically, it's essentially a toolkit. Uh, call it the art and science, if you like. I mean, it seemed it certainly worked for him. Um, but it's a, a toolkit for focusing your intentions toward a toward a meaningful goal, and a pre, usually a practical goal. <clears throat> One of the things that I stress to people who want to know about, you know, writing magic systems or understanding magic systems, is to realize that when you <clears throat> when you research real world magic systems, they are always a means to an end. Magic systems, practices, tools, all of them come from someone who needed something and said, "I think this thing will get me what I need." All of the esoteric stuff comes later. It's like with martial arts, which you know is a form of magic in its own way. Um, martial arts start as I need to defend myself. I don't have weapons. That dude has weapons. That dude will kill me if I can't defend myself. Therefore, I will learn to defend myself better. The esoteric comes out of the practical. And so for me, magic is, like, like, like I said, that, that toolkit of... Finding practical ways to to focus my intentions in a way that brings 
you know, hopefully, ideally brings a desired form of change. For me personally, my magic is art. Uh, that's that's the toolkit that I use. Uh, I've been studying esoterica for really since I was a child, um, and that one of the things that that I found, you know, doing that is that everybody has, and this comes through a lot in mage. Different people, different cultures, different individuals, different groups have different toolkits. But ultimately, what they're trying to do is, I need to improve my situation in X way, and this is how I'm going to try and do it. Um, the 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 theory follows the practice, and one of my I think we had touched on this briefly in our uh, in our pre you know pre recording discussion. Uh, for me personally, I uh, I grew up in a culturally Catholic high, um, ca culturally Catholic household. Uh, my dad's Sicilian, so you know Catholic. Uh, um, but for dad, Catholic is more of a culture thing than it is a strong belief thing. My dad is Christian, but he's not one of those Christians who makes a big, huge deal out of it. Um, and my mom is Lutheran. And one of the things that they agreed on was, you know, we're not going to proselytize to the kids. The kids will go to church, but they get to choose their own path. Uh, because of a series of, of um, complex life experiences, I briefly got involved with uh, evangelical Christianity in my early teens. And that lasted for not quite a year before I saw the bullshit and said, fuck this and got out. Uh, <laughs> and following my fuck this, get out stage... I started going, okay, well, something that I got out of the evangelical, uh, evangelical experience that I did not get out of, the, out of going to church with my parents was, was, was the sublime, the experience of the sublime. Um, and so essentially what I, what I did was go, okay, well, I can tell there's something else out here that's bigger than just me, than just my, you know, my physical circumstances. But I, how, how do we reach it? How do we find it? So I explored Judaism, I explored Islam, I explored Mormonism and paganism, and I didn't join those different sects. But I talked to, and I still do, you know, talk to people from those. Go to the rituals, uh, read the holy books. I've got you know, bookshelves full of scriptures from from various different uh, from various different creeds. And one of the things that I came to out of that in my by my early twenties was, you know, God, Goddess, Great Spirit, You, Divinity. Who the hell are you? Because what I see here is everybody's got these certain things that have meaning and sooner or later they all get drowned in bullshit how do i get around the bullshit and the answer that i got was literally i heard these words in my head that's because you were looking at the works of man and the works of man are flawed if yeah. you want to understand divinity look to the creations of divinity not the works of man that's how i decided on paganism but my paganism is not i'm not wicca i'm not fairy tradition i'm not alexandrian i'm not heathen um my spiritual connection is to look at the natural world and experience the natural world through the prism of the human world and recognize that my human prism is limited and that the natural world and divinity are larger than that i mean and so oh sorry go ahead. yeah talk, talk about like I guess Crowleyan interpretations of of connecting with divinity of 
seeing every act as a magical act and and seeing every interaction with the natural world as evidence of god i mean that's that's pretty that's pretty wonderful yes uncle uncle al was a fuck up but he was a brilliant fuck up and i wouldn't (laughs) choose the guy as a role model but uh you know one thing that i will give uncle al for all of the shit that he did all the fucked up stupid ass repugnant reprehensible things that that guy did the one thing that i will give him is that he he walked the talk yeah and there's a whole lot of people who are better you know better human beings on a lot of levels who don't have that level of courage of conviction um that's as much really as i'll say positive about crowley because the guy was a douche yeah (laughs) absolutely uh, but but you know he he lived it for better and worse he lived it and if nothing else i respect that and there were things that he said and did that were really fucking stupid um and there were things that he said and did that 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 work that are right and i i think as much as he was on many levels a culturally appropriating, you know, Victorian slash Edwardian rich dude running around being a cultural tourist in other people's sacred traditions, uh, which is all, you know, absolutely true. Yeah. Um, he was looking for something sublime in them and he found it and he communicated it in ways that other people understand. Okay, yeah. I can go with that. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 kind of paved the way for kind of new and wonderful, interesting um, disciplines. I mean, even just, I mean, you mentioned Wicca. I mean, even looking at, looking at the influence that um, he had on, on the creation of Wicca is, is pretty, I, I would say is pretty admirable. And I think there's some pretty amazing people that have either been students of, whether it be actual students of directly or just inspired by, um, by the 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 man's work that i think it's it's definitely worth noting but you're absolutely right he was a complete piece of shit yep there's a oh well that's that's all other tangent anyway i'm sure you probably have other questions that 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 hopefully don't involve hour-long tangents like that well i i want to i want to be mindful of time because i i'm i'm just realizing how much time has passed because this has been such a good conversation um rick yeah. do you do you want to take the take the next one maybe one more question and then we can maybe talk about some things you have going on coming down the pike and things maybe some things you want to promote sure thank you rick did we, did we lose you rick do we have a rick oops sorry i guess i was on mute for some reason <laughs> That's right. um my wife ended up going to bed. Um, so I love The Vampire Dark Ages. It's one of my favorite books of the entire uh, publishing catalog. However, I, I really want to get some uh, perspective on The Sorcerer's Crusade, which is a beautiful uh, book, yeah. and I know you love it. Thank you. Thank you. That, of all the of all the role-playing game things I've created, Sorcerer's Crusade is the one I'm most proud of. That's... Um, on a lot of levels, that's that's the one where all the all all the pieces came together the right way, and it's funny because that was the one that was the first one where I was able to make use of social media, which was you know still a really embryonic concept in in '97 when I started that book, but which I think I've even even started in '96. Uh, but um, 
but that was the first one where by by the time I started working on Sorcerer's Crusade between the people I'd met at conventions and the people I'd been corresponding with either through email or through letters I I had a a decent base of people that I could bring together in a ver in, in a virtual sense and go so how do we do this where you know what uh you know what would be the proper french way of saying this is this over here historically is this accurate or is this a mistake um this thing over here is this culturally is this properly culturally german the stupid american here wants to you know wants to know um and because we had um you know because we because we had the the first brain trust of that kind, uh, I was able to run a lot of things past people to avoid making the kinds of mistakes we'd been making earlier and to bring a level of richness to it that wouldn't have been possible earlier. Uh, on a number of levels, Sorcerer's Crusade is the fantasy game, the high fantasy game that I always wanted to play, so I made it. Um, and part of it was that it was a, a, a wonderful tool, uh, or rather uh, toy box uh, for this um, meta plot that we had been building for the last few years and got to actually you know run around with it you know pick up pick up the uh pick up the toys and go vroom vroom with them uh and so we had we had a blast doing that book it was not an easy book to do oh my god no um the the history chapter defeated like four authors and finally wow. it was kenneth height who managed to uh to to bring to it what i wanted um and the the result was kind of a kit bash of like ken me and like three other writers and i just kind of frankenstein that together into a into a coherent chapter uh the rest of it felt felt the rest of it other other than that fell together really easily and i, I had a blast um working on it and uh the the fortunes and misfortunes of war being what they were, uh, we weren't able to, to go nearly as far, nearly as long with the book as, uh, or the, the lines I would have liked to do when, um, when we had the, the third round of layoffs, which is when I left, uh, both voluntarily and otherwise, uh, one, they canceled a bunch of the management canceled a bunch of the lines and sorcerers crusade was one of them, at which point Mike Tinney, who at that point was the head of uh, uh, our licensing and marketing division, set up Art House Publishing, which was sort of the onyx path, uh, you know, the, the onyx path of, of the late 90s. And he said, you know, Steve, can I publish these books under license? And Steve was like, sure, great, whatever. Uh, so I had started to continue Sorcerer's Crusade with, uh, with Mike Tenney, and then I got angry at Steve and uh, canceled all my outstanding contracts and handed Sorcerer's Crusade off to Rochelle Udall, who ran with it for, I think, two more books before um, White Wolf just kind of closed up shop and sold out to CCP. Was that uh, Castles and Covenant and Crusade lore? Uh, no, it was uh, Castles and Covenant. Actually, I think it was... Um, um, Order of Reason and uh, Witches and Pagans. Oh yeah. And uh, I'd had a lot of ideas for it, which I could theoretically still run with, but I I just don't have the energy at this point to put that much work into more work for higher stuff that I'll never own the own the rights to. Uh, but there, 
there was so much with that era that um, that I wanted to run with, and we were able to tap into little bits of it here and there because it was up until the 20th century, I think the, the, the single most fascinating century of human existence until the 20th century, or at least the 1800s. I, I would say, you know, would go further with that. And that was kind of how I sold the idea to, uh, to management because they were really stuck on doing a medieval mage. And I was mm -hmm. like, a medieval mage is just, you know, Ars Magica with a few, uh, with a few serial numbers filed off. I said, well, would really, <laughs> yeah, really make made it dark mage. ages. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I said, what would really make it mage is to set it at the point where the, where the tradition, the council of traditions forms. And that way we can go with a whole bunch of uh, both exi combined existing history with occult history, with our invented history and make something that has, that is completely distinct that nobody's ever done before. And I, I think even 22 years, yeah, 22 years after it came out, I still think it stands as uh, a fantasy game, unlike anything anyone else has done since. And I'm still really proud of that. And it reads well, too. Uh, one of the things I was impressed with when I crammed the entire line of Mage while working on, on 20th anniversary was just how well the Sorcerer's Crusade books have stood up. Yeah, and they're beautiful, too. Yeah, Rich had a field day with those. Um, because one of the things, ideally, when I'm working with people, whatever whatever project or company that is, Ideally, when I'm working with people, I want my collaborators to be having fun. Yeah, that's when I'm hiring collaborators. You know, when when I have the ability to hire collaborators, I hire people based on whether or not I think that their head is coming from where I want this project to be, or I design a project around somebody with, with like, you know, especially this happens with Rochelle. Hey, this is a great idea. Rochelle has this great idea. Let's make a book around it, which is sort of where, where Revelations of the Dark Mother came from. Uh, they, you know, uh, Rob wanted a Lewis gospel, and that was right where right in Rochelle's and my um, alley. And so that's what we, that's what we came over. You asked earlier about the poetry. The, the poetry in, in uh, Revelations of the Dark Mother is about two-thirds me and a, and a third Rochelle, and I couldn't really tell you where one ended and the other began because, one, we're good friends, and we uh, and, and we collaborate well together, and a lot of it was, you know, brainstormed up, and then, like, she would say something, I would write it down, or I would say something, and she would write it down, uh, and so it's it's really pretty much a, a, a synthesis of both of us. But I got, I got to say that Revelations of the Dark Mother was, was hugely influential to me um both as a um as a as a player but but more importantly just in 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 life and as an artist um it's it's one of my top 10 favorite books of all time oh cool thank you i was gonna say mark what's your daughter's name yeah my daughter's name is lilith and i honestly <laughs> it's, I, honestly revelations of the dark mother is probably part of the reason <laughs> <laughs> i i i i would love to have I, I'd love to have been a fly on the wall for when you explain that with your wife. Well, um, so, <laughs> cool. so I can't wait to hear this one. So we were looking. <laughs> so, so it was our second child. We almost named um, our first daughter Lilith, and um, for for our second daughter, we were talking, and you know, 
do we go with the Jewish name? Uh, we don't have a Hebrew name. And my father-in-law was, was pretty upset that we, we didn't choose a Hebrew name for, um, for my first daughter. So we started going down the line of Hebrew names. <laughs> and, and Lilith kind of came up, I want to say organically, um, but my wife loves the archetype of Lilith as a feminist figure. Um, okay, and cool. She, she's not really into tabletop gaming, really. And, and I love the, the archetype of Lilith as from, um, from Revelation, Revelations of the Dark Mother, but also the inspiration of Revelations of the Dark Mother to, uh, is it Rabbi Numbers? I don't remember the rabbi that wrote the, the actual story of, of Lilith being um, Adam's first, first wife. Um, but, you know, she was pretty, she was pretty adamant about, like yeah, you know what we talked about it with our first kid. Let's do it. Let's and and it felt right. It, yeah, yeah. So I, I was curious when we were talking earlier. I'd gotten the impression that you are Jewish. So you are Jewish. Cool. Thank yeah, you. yeah. That's my my wife at the time was Jewish also. So that was an, a, a, an additional influence on uh, uh, on on the revelation. You know, revelations. The Dark Mother was my my then wife Wendy. Actually, I think my my then fiance at the time we wrote it. My wife afterward. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, you, you really it's it's a magical book, and and I'm gonna I'm gonna thank you for writing that. Um, thank you. But I I want to give you the opportunity to kind of promote what you have coming down huh. the line, and and I, and I'm interested. I know thank that you you, you released mm -hmm. Valhalla with the twist of Lethe and other strange tales, um, and you you mentioned that you're you're writing on um, the they came from uh, beyond the grave. So what what else are you what else are you working on? What's coming up for for Seder. Well, the big things, and thank both. I, I wanted to mention earlier. Thank you both, and I really appreciate you uh, both for for mentioning Valhalla with a taste of twist of leaf because that's um, I haven't promoted it a whole lot, uh, and that wound up being self published just because we didn't want to jump through the hoops with another publisher, and uh, we're pleased with the way it came out. But um, but I would definitely like it to get a bit more visibility than it's currently at. <laughs> so I appreciate that. Thank you. We would love to um, help with that in any way we can. I mean, you're someone that we uh, deeply respect. You know, even after this conversation, we have much more of a, a <laughs> kinship with you, and we love promoting the things that our friends work on and that we love. So yeah, uh, it's just kind of like a modus operandi of ours. We uh, we try to help the people that did so much for us continue to be successful. Um, so by all means, talk to us about it, and we'll we'll see what, what we can do to help spread the word about more of your good works. Oh my God, maybe cool. we can, maybe you. maybe we can have you read a sample, like on uh, sure on stream or something. That would be awesome. Sure, thank you. I, I I'd love to do that. And there's also we're working on an audiobook version of it, um, collaborating with uh, with my friend Ivy. Who is a professional audiobook reader, and she and I are doing most of the stories uh, for for uh, for folks who haven't seen it. Uh, the Hollow with a Twist of Leaf is twenty five a collection of twenty five pieces of my self owned short fiction. That is stuff that's not written for White Wolf or Major or anything. That was uh, I, I originally began actually I originally began writing as a uh, as a movie critic uh, and then a political columnist, but I began publishing fiction before actually before White Wolf existed. <laughs> so I began as a short story writer. And over the years I published in various different, you know, magazines, anthologies, and so forth. And 
uh, realized that I, I'd had a backlog of work, so I've, I've started putting it together. I originally planned to do an omnibus of it and realized <laughs> that I had too much stuff to go into one book, so I'm uh, gradually compiling a second one. But Mahalo with a Twist of Leaf is is the first, and that came out last month. It was available in uh, Barnes and & Noble and Amazon and uh, drive-through and basically anybody that gets uh, gets books distributed through Ingram Publishing. Um, can get that and we have it currently available in print and uh and digital editions the um the audio edition that that ivy and i have been working on all of it's finished except for my portions because it turned out that i my recording setup here at home was not good enough uh, so um i've been upgrading that and i'm going to set up now that our downstairs housemate has moved out i'm setting up the downstairs this week as a recording studio so i can finish the recording on that one but uh i would i'd be glad to read from uh from that book and uh maybe feature some of this the stuff that ivy has as uh, has read and recorded as well uh we also have uh, uh my, my friend sj tucker the musician is also reads one of the stories and our friend abby Eke, uh, who is also an actor who just <laughs> as she uh, she posted up on Facebook earlier today is now a magic card too <laughs> but uh, she read several several of the stories too um, but uh, other things that I have coming up uh, just yesterday day before yesterday released a mini game I have my Patreon which has been going for about six years now and my Patreon has hundreds a backlog of hundreds of wow. excerpts and works in progress and sketches and recordings and podcast episodes and uh mini games which i started doing earlier this year and uh i just just published a new mini game day before yesterday called creatures of the wood which is a mini game about a, a person from the town going into the wilderness and encountering a person from the wilderness. And what will they make out of this? <laughs> <laughs> and that's, uh, that's, yeah. that's patreon.com slash Phil Brucato. It's patreon.com Phil Brucato. Perfect. Perfect. And that's, like I said, for, for people getting in on that, it's got several different levels, uh, which include anything from excerpts to, to uh, to short fiction to um, video conferences that I have once a month with my high uh, my highest level backers, and the mini game was kind of a available through um, uh, the level four dollars a month. I think it's four dollars a month and up. And there are other several other mini games up there, including my my personal favorite, Life with Aliens, which is about you and your pet. <laughs> that's great and uh thank you and so that's 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 what i've been working on the various things on, that go on my patreon new stories and things uh just posted a new story uh a beer for hank or buy a beer for hank which is kind of about me and me and a henry rollins cover <laughs> and, and, a, and a goth lip sync night um i have several other projects coming out this month um uh, for that which i don't want to don't want to spoil by talking about them just yet because i have to finish writing the damn things uh, i've got the uh the thing for uh it came from beyond the grave uh cold cold stream creek i also have my novel my, my novel rather red shoes which is has been 
know, written, edited, laid out whole nine yards. We're just waiting for Echo Chernick to finish the cover. And uh, you know, Echo and I have obviously been collaborating forever, too. And a few books ago, she said, I want dibs on your next book cover. So she's got the cover of this one. That's great. And uh, Red Shoes is an urban fantasy novel uh, dealing with a uh, dealing with a dancer who's one of her member one of the members of her troupe spontaneously combusts on stage, and she wants to figure out why. And the reasons why ends up being a lot weirder than she thinks. Ooh, <laughs> that sounds awesome. Yeah, Thank it does. you. Well, when when uh, when was... these projects when these projects come out, I, I want you. Um, Seder, I want you to come back because this was an amazing conversation and I really, really enjoyed having you on. Thank you. Thank you. It was really great talking with you as well. And that's, that's a pleasure. It's great talking with both of you and it's really good being on the show. And yeah, this is, this is wonderful. I'd love to do this again. Thanks. Yeah, yeah totally. Make sure, make sure that if you're not following um, Seder on Twitter, you can at um, S-A-T-Y-R-O. S B R U C A T O. That's Satiros Bricado. Um, make sure you check out his website, um, satirosphilbricado.wordpress.com, um, on patreon.com slash philbricado. Um, Seder, this is great. Thank you so much. Um, and make sure you follow us on Twitter at Gehenna Gaming. And until then, we'll see you on the next one. Thank you for listening to the Gehenna Gaming Podcast. Your attention has been noted. You can find us online at GehennaGaming.com, on Twitter at GehennaGaming, twitch.tv slash GehennaGaming, and patreon.com slash GehennaGaming.